Hey Mustangs and welcome to Hello Hilltop. My name is Haley Manick and today I sit down with Paula Selzer. Paula graduated from SMU's Middle School of the Arts where she majored in video and cinema. Ms. Selzer also co-authored the book Adolphe Ganaw, French Revolutionary, Utopian Leader and Texas Frontier Photographer. Paula is now in possession of a painting found in France which was created by her great 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 grandfather Adolphe Ganaw. She is here today to discuss her fascinating legacy. Welcome, Paula. Thank you, thanks for having me. So your great-great-great-grandfather is a fascinating figure in North Texas history. He was chosen to lead an advanced guard from France to settle a utopian colony in North Texas and was ultimately expelled from the colony, traveling first to Fort Worth to teach the federal soldiers their French and art, and then to Dallas, where he founded the town's first art establishment in the 1850s. So what were some of the things that you knew about him while growing up? Well, not a lot. Um, my grandmother and my mom used to have conversations about him. So my grandmother would have been his great granddaughter. So her mother was his granddaughter. So she never met him. Um, but I did hear stories about him growing up. We heard that uh, he played a number of musical instruments and that he spoke several different languages, but we didn't know too much more than that until several books um, were published in the 50s and 60s, and they um, introduced him to uh, Dallas readers. So then my grandmother learned a little bit more about him, but um, that's really all we knew is just, uh, you know, we'd find a sentence or two in different books about Dallas histories, but, you know, maybe a paragraph sometimes, but, but not much more than that. Can you just give me an overview of your great, great, great grandfather's story? So an overview is, is tricky because he, um, he spent his life divided between France and the US. And the first 44 years of his life were spent in France. He didn't immigrate here until 1848. But he was born um, in 1804, sort of the dawn of the Romantic era um, in the foothills of the Alps in a little town called Flagey. His father was the mayor of the town and they didn't have a school. So he went to school just um, in his own home with other students. So his father died when he was 15. He left home and he went to Lyon uh, to help support his mom and sister. And that's where we really um, understand sort of the first um, things about Ganaw. And we know that he was a very charismatic, tenacious, talented individual, that he was loyal, religious, self-righteous. He was just all, all over the board. Um, we also know that he worked as a druggist or a color mixer, an artist and an art restorer, that he was an opportunist, a restaurateur, um, a leader of the utopian community, a visionary, a winemaker, a doctor. I mean, the list of, of his accomplishments just go on and on and on. But the first thing he did in Leon after he, he married uh, in 1829 is he embarked on uh, building a tower that he called a monument to the arts and sciences. And his vision for the tower was that he would install a lightning rod and it would keep lightning away from the town of Lyon. Um, I, don't, I don't know how realistic that actually would have been, but that was, that was his vision. But he also envisioned a natural, a, a gallery for natural sciences, uh, an artist studio, um, you know, a place where artists could gather, an observatory um, to the stars. So, you know, this tower was really a, a big deal for him and a big undertaking. So he used his wife to, wife's diary, dowry to finance it, but he got in way over his head. So he had lots of creditors and, and debtors. And so the, the tower was finally built, but 
it put him in bankruptcy. So his creditors sued him. They took him to court and he basically left Lyon after the tower was constructed and he was financially and emotionally bankrupt. So he disappears for a few years and then we find him again um, following a man by the name of Etienne Cabet. Cabet was the leader of Icarian socialism. He was, uh, he was very instrumental in influencing Gana's political ideology. So Gana followed him, um, but he got involved with some revolutionaries in France that were really seeking to overtake the monarchy by any means necessary, including violence, whereas Cabet was more interested in sort of a passive resistance and creating a utopian um, community that was, was more equal, where everybody could be equal and had opportunity for education and that kind of thing. So, so Ganoff followed him, but he, when he got involved with these revolutionaries, um, the police started following him and put him under surveillance. So he was ultimately arrested and put on trial for conspiracy against the monarchy. And then he was acquitted. Uh, finally, after he spent, I don't know, six or seven months in prison, they brought him to trial. He was acquitted of, of all charges. And then he kind of disappears for a few more years until 1848, when he finally immigrates to Texas. So they left the coast of Normandy in 18, January of 1848, and they sailed on um, a, a sailing vessel called the Rome into New Orleans. They got to New Orleans, and they were supposed to meet their guide there. They were going to take them to some land that Cabet had um, organized with Peters, uh, William Smalling Peters, of Peter's Colony. I don't know if, if people have heard of that before, but those were um, free land grants that were made available to early Texas settlers. They get to New Orleans, their guide doesn't meet them, they take a steamer up the Red River as far as Shreveport, they get another guide, and then they walk from Shreveport 200 miles across North Texas to Denton County. They set up a utopian colony in Denton County, which ultimately fails because it's a utopian colony. There's not many of those left around today. Um, so he leaves the colony, or he is expelled from the colony, and he hooks up with the soldiers at Fort Worth. And he teaches the soldiers art and drawing, swordsmanship, teaches French, teaches music, and he gets enough money. And then he finally makes his way over to Dallas. Now, Dallas only had about 2,000 people in the county and just a few hundred people in the city at that time. So now it's 1850. He gets to Dallas. He has a little bit of money. So he decides to open an art saloon, which is basically the first art gallery, first sort of multi-purpose facility gathering place um, in Dallas. So that was about 1851 when he opened the art saloon. He painted uh, he taught music lessons. Uh, they held Sunday school and church classes there. He collected fossils. He made wine. Um, he was just a, a really interesting and charismatic character. So that kind of brings us up to, you know, what, what his first accomplishments, accomplishment was in Dallas. There were a lot of other things, but those are kind of the highlights of his life. That's honestly really fascinating and just he has a very crazy story. Mm. That's wild. Um, so kind of, I'm going to shift a little bit of a gear here, but um, sure. your book is like the first biography of, of Gana. 
Um, but what compelled you to take on this challenge of writing this book? And you know, what stories had been passed down from your family to compel you to write it since been such a challenge on this, on this fascinating legacy of him? So I was contacted by my co-author, Emmanuel Pecantal, in uh, about 2011. I was actually sitting on Glo at Gloria's on the patio on Greenville Avenue, if you know where that is. And I was checking my email and I had a, an email from Emmanuel and I thought, I, I don't recognize this name. And I almost swiped it into my trash folder. And then I noticed that Gunnar's name was in the title, the subject title of the email. So I opened it up and he said that he had been doing research on Gunnar's involvement with the, the, the history of astronomy in Lyon. And he wanted to know if I had any information that I could share with him. So I wrote him back right away and I said, no, I don't know that much about him, but I would love to know more. If you've got information, you know, I'm, I'm happy to share everything I know if you can share your information. So we started corresponding um, in 2011 and we got on Skype and had conversations every weekend practically since then. And the book just kind of evolved. Um, we were both sort of hoping that we could publish an article about his fascinating life, but the more I dug in Texas and the more Emmanuel dug in France, the more all these details came out about his life. And you know, previously we did not really know the extent of his revolutionary activities. We didn't know his occupation. We didn't know much about him at all. So, you know, it just the, the book kind of evolved over months-long collaboration and research. When meeting Peckenthal, um, how did his fascinations come about about Ganaw? So Emmanuel is um, an astrophysicist by training, and he's head of observatory, a historical observatory in Lyon and teaches at a university there. And so um, he was really interested in Gunnar's um, connection with science and the observatory. And, you know, mine, of course, was more about his arts background. But, you know, the more we started collaborating, he was just such a unique and... Um, and diversified individual that we um, were just fascinated by him. I mean, I really started kind of getting into Gunnar's head and, and trying to figure out what his motivations were and who he knew and, you know, the whole era that he grew up in, you know, what was that all about? So we, I, we both just got sucked into this guy. And, you know, we spent six years just talking about him and kind of nothing else. Yeah, that's, that is really fascinating. And that's super cool that you got to meet someone who's probably not, who's not a part of your family, but that is also fascinating with your great, great, great grandfather's, you know, legacy. What kind of feedback have you gotten from members of your family or friends about the book? Well, of course, my family's very excited. They've been very supportive the whole time. Um, and uh, I don't know that all of my family members have read the book, but those have had, who have are very excited about it. And unfortunately, my mom passed away just a year before the book was published. So that's, that was really a big disappointment because, you know, she was the one that kind of made the connection between me and my grandmother. And she loved history and she's always been involved with all kinds of historical organizations in Dallas. So um, that was disappointing. But on the upside, um, it's gotten some very positive reviews from uh, French scholars um, who have studied, you know, French socialism and utopian communism and all that. And I'm not a scholar. I mean, I, you know, my background is, is basically the arts 
And then I went back and I got a degree in public policy um, in the 90s. And then I started a career um, in public service with the Environmental Protect Protection Agency. But, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not really a scholar. I'm just a very tenacious researcher and historian. So um, it all kind of came together. What kind of feedback have you received from the public? Any others come forward that knew of your grandfather's history that made you realize the lasting effects of his legacy? So members of the public, um, you know, it's, I think, I think he's just now being introduced to the public. Um, although, as I said before, he's, his name has appeared in lots of different history books about Dallas. Um, the book was published last October, so just about a year ago, last month, and I was just about to be able to talk to him and uh, talk, talk about him in different presentations when COVID hit. So that's really kind of um, impeded my ability to, to do presentations and, and to talk to the public. The very first presentation I did was right after it was published in um, Denton. And so some folks in Denton know about him. And then just last month, I was able to finally talk to the Dallas Historical Society about him. So we had a nice crowd. We had about 80 people um, that attended that presentation and, and sold a few books. And um, so the next one I think I've got coming up is in Allen after the first of the year. And then um, I've got Tarrant County Historical Society that's um, not yet been scheduled, but it's we're, we're talking about getting me to Tarrant County. But, you know, COVID kind of makes everything difficult. That's why I was so excited to do this, this podcast, because this is the first one I've done. And I think um, it will be able to introduce um, a new audience to Ghana. Yes, yes. And again, thank you for joining me today. Um, so I hear that publishing negotiations are currently underway for a French translation. Um, what does this mean to you to have it get translated? Well, it's pretty thrilling. I mean, I never thought that we'd have a book published on him. Of course, this is my first book. And then to have it translated into another language and, and have it translated into Gana's first language is um, just super exciting. And um, I think that uh, we haven't signed a contract, but I think it will probably happen within the next couple of months. So, you know, before the end of the year. And in, in terms of... Um, the, the translation itself, some of the chapters were written first in French and then Emmanuel translated them to English. And then I worked on cleaning up some of his translations. So um, Emmanuel has already translated it all. So it's with the publisher now and it's out for peer review. So they're having other authors, other historians review it. So as I said, I'm, I'm hoping that um, it, the publishing will, will commence um, before the end of the year, maybe after the first year. Do you have any sequels or plans for the future? No, no sequels. Um, I've written several other articles that are due out for publication after the first of the year. I just finished an article for the Texas State Historical Association online. So if people are interested in learning a little bit more about him. There's a summary of his life um, at Texas State Historical Association online, easy enough to find. I'll never stop researching him. 
there are periods of his life that we still don't know much about. So I'm kind of hoping that once um, people hear about the book, if they've done research about him or if they're interested in his life, they'll take my research a step further. Um, but, you know, I, I worked on this book for six years and um, I'm kind of exhausted. <laughs> But then at the same time, you know, I'm still very interested in, in any new research that comes out about him. Yes, and I think we would all be really excited to find out what those missing puzzle pieces are, because exactly. he has a very long history. That's, I mean, crazy to just think about, like going through in general. I'm actually really excited because we're going to move on to this painting that you are now have. Um, so. When did you first hear about the painting and its restoration and what emotions came to you when they found out about this discovery? So there's references to Gana being an artist um, probably a dozen times in the book. Um, most of the references are in France, but there are a few uh, firsthand accounts of newspaper reporters mentioning that they were in the art saloon and they saw his watercolors, they saw his oils. But we wrote the whole book never having seen any of his artworks. Um, we do know that he painted a giant canvas in Fort Worth for one of his friends. Um, a canvas is temporary. Uh, it was on the side of the man's hotel. So that was kind of, you know, just a temporary thing. And that, uh, that's long gone. But we were hoping that after the book was published, some paintings would show up. And sure enough, Emmanuel got a letter back in the spring from a man who is a gallery owner in Brittany, France, and he's liquidating his collection. He's going to fund a foundation or something. I'm not quite sure why he's selling some of his paintings, but he did. He saw that Gunnar's signature was on the back of the painting, and he contacted Emmanuel and said, hey, I have a painting here, and I see that you've written a book about this man. Would you be interested in seeing the painting or in buying it or whatever? So Emmanuel contacted me, and I said, yes, I want that painting. Now my great, great, great grandfather's painting. It's the only real tangible link that I have to him. So Emmanuel and his wife boarded a train. They went to Brittany, they picked up the painting, they brought it back and then um, he shipped it to me a couple of months later. And uh, it was in very, very bad condition. It had been in a fire at some point and the paint was literally curled up off of the canvas. There were holes in the canvases. So um, I had it restored here in Dallas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm assuming there's probably a lot more out there we, that we just don't know about. I hope so. I mean, I'm hoping that as the word gets out about the book and as this podcast is distributed, distributed, um, that we'll be able to find some more paintings. I mean, who knows what what Dallasites whose family has gone back um, several generations in the city they might have paintings in their attic. They might have drawings in old trunks or closets. I mean, I'm, I'm just really excited to see if anybody will come forward and say, hey, I've, I've got this painting. It's got a Dolph on. I, you know, I've, I stumbled across your book and, you know, so that's what we're hoping for. Mm -hmm. And then I'm expecting too that, you know, translating it into a French um, language that maybe even then you might find more in France, which would be super cool. It would be super cool. Um, Emmanuel did did his due diligence on the research and he contacted all of the Catholic diocese in southern France because Gonal was known to have painted religious paintings. So um, none of the diocese had any paintings, but um, you know, we, we still have hope that, that somebody might have one in a, a private collection or something. So is this painting a religious painting? 
It is a religious painting. I'm sorry that we're, you know, we can't have a camera to show you guys the painting, um, but it is, um, it's an image that is about uh, 24 by maybe 30. I don't know the exact dimensions, but um, it is a painting of the nave of a church. So it's looking down the long aisle towards the altar of the church. And in the foreground, you can see several fix, uh, figures that are kind of cloaked or hooded and uh, their silhouettes. And then in the background, it's the altar is lit up uh, with sunlight and it's, it's kind of flooded with this yellow gold light while the rest of the painting is very dark and sort of medieval looking. And um, it's cool painting, very cool painting. Um, what do you plan on doing with the painting? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know that I would hang a church painting in my house. Um, it's not, the colors aren't necessarily something that I'm attracted to. Um, <laughs> Gothic churches are, are not typically, you know, something I put on my wall, but um, right now it's, it's sitting in my study. Um, it's not framed because of the restoration. So I need to get a new frame for it, but I don't know. I mean, if people are interested in seeing it or exhibiting it, um, in their galleries or museums or whatever, I'm very open to that. Mm -hmm. Um, so my last question for you today is what do you want the world to know and learn from your grandfather that is timeless and, and serves as an inspiration now and to the future? Well, I, as I said at the very beginning, he was very tenacious. So I think the legacy that he leaves um, for Dallas is that he was Dallas' first artist in residence. He was also Dallas' first citizen to be naturalized in, in Dallas County. So, um, you know, that's a pretty big deal too. And I just think that the fact that he opened the first cultural institution in our city um, really warrants some recognition of, of what a unique individual he was. Um, and I, I think I'd like for people to know that, um, and that, you know, he was just, just a fascinating character. And if people have a chance to read the summary on the web, or if they have, you know, the opportunity to, to read the book, um, I think, because it's a biography of just a, a really incredible human being, I think they would get a lot out of that. Well, thank you again, Paula, for joining me today and discussing your family's history. And thank you to everyone for listening today. Be sure to purchase Paula's book and you can purchase it anywhere. And also be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SMU Hello Hilltop. Thank you again and tune in next time on Hello Hilltop.